So, yeah, to me, let's let's go back to basics, Jack. And I like the way you say this. Like when you you know we all get caught up in this. Like how do we keep ourselves uh, focused on the north star? The key is to thinking about investing versus speculating, right? So investing is buying a partial stake in a business with an understanding that you are you're, you're going to get the benefits of that uh, value growth over time. Speculating is buying something hoping that it'll go up. And, and as I always like to say, most investors combine too. I don't want to say everyone, anybody's pure in any of this stuff. But the reality is that you should separate those two things as you're participating in markets, right? So clearly, if you're, you're buying or selling a meme stock, you're not doing it because you think there's fun. I mean, at least I presume that they... But by the way, the original GameStop, there was fundamental value. So I think the, the initial buying of that stock back a long time ago was, it was a fundamental case. But as it starts to make these sort of extraordinary runs, it stops to be a stops being a fundamental case. So again, what are you doing? So and, and by the way, there's no I'm not making a moral judgment. Speculation's perfectly fine. In fact, speculation is is actually a very uh, can in some ways can be a healthy thing for markets in terms of liquidity and so forth. So let's be clear, that's okay. But just just demarcate what you're doing, just to be clear about it. So I think that's the thing I would just remind people: what are you doing? Are you investing or speculating? Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I have the privilege to sit down with Michael Mobison, Head of Consilient Research at Morgan Stanley Investment Management's Counterpoint Global. We talked to Michael about a wide array of topics from how value investing has changed over time, investment factors, the central idea from his recently updated book, Expectations Investing, the importance of base rates and probabilities in the markets, passive investing's impact, and the idea of paradox of skill, and much more. This is a great conversation, and Michael's consilient approach to how he views investing in the markets shines through. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Morgan Stanley's Michael Mobbs. Hi, Michael. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Justin. Great to be with you guys. We're very excited to have you on. We're going to be talking about a lot of different subjects and topics related to investing in the areas of your writing and research. But to start, I wanted to ask you about the current role that you have at Morgan Stanley and actually what you do in your job, because I think it's going to help give listeners a sense of the different areas that we're going to get into in this interview. And your title at Morgan Stanley is head of, yeah. head of conciliate research, counterpoint global. So I'll let you explain sort of what you do and what that title actually means. Yeah, exactly. So what the heck does that mean? So it's never good when your title is people have to look it up. I <laughs> have to Google the title. Um, but the history of that is going back to the late 1990s. There was a book written by E.O. Wilson, the eminent um, biologist. By the way, there's a brand new biography of Wilson out by Richard Rose, which is wonderful, called The Scientist and, and, and a really nice read. But E.O. Wilson is most famous for his work on ants, but really has been a very influential biologist. And he wrote a book in the late 90s uh, called Consilience. And consilience is an old word. It's from the 1800s, but it really means the unification of knowledge. And the, the argument that Wilson made in the book was that while science has been incredible in terms of advancements through reductionism by breaking things into their components, that a lot of the interesting challenges in the future will be solved only by consilience, by bringing different disciplines together, and that reductionism in many cases, especially for complex systems, doesn't wouldn't work. All right, so I'm, I'm I read that, you know, I'm and I'm into the mental models thing and so forth. So I'm very inspired by that. And in the early 2000s, I launched a newsletter, and and part of this is because I'm one of those guys, you know, I, I'm reading an article or watching something or whatever, and I'm like. 
oh, this seems like that, or, you know, they should be thinking about this thing over here. So I got, I'm doing all this chattering and talking to my computer screen and my TV. And I was like, you know what? I should write these things down. So the title of that uh, newsletter series was called The Consilient Observer. And by the way, The Consilient Observer, the greatest hits of that ended up being the book, More Than You Know. So if you buy More Than You Know, that's essentially the greatest uh, hits of The Consilient Observer. And so that's where it all came from. So I, uh, when I was talking to Dennis Lynch, who runs our team at uh, Counterpoint Global, Dennis was a fan of the Consilient Observer for many years ago. And he's like, hey, man, let's bring back the name. <laughs> so, so Consilient Research. And more specifically, sort of the sets of responsibilities kind of go in three buckets. It'll be very logical if, you're, if you've seen anything that I've done. The first is really to try to work with a team on investment process. So how do we as an organization remain a learning organization? How do we think better? How do we sort of on top of, of, of different trends in, in, in markets and so forth? So it's really an internal role. The second is uh, writing research. And of course, the research has dual objectives. One is to, to make us better. Uh, but the second is we, are, we share that with the world. Um, and then the third thing is just external things. So that would be, you know, to the degree to which, you know, conferences or, or client types of interactions or whatever. So those are my three sets of responsibilities. Now, you know, with COVID, it's been unusual because there's been less in-person in interaction in organizations, which you guys all know about. And, and more, it's given me more of a chance to do a lot more research, which is, which is fun. So the balance is maybe a little bit unusual in the last uh, year and a half, but uh, that's the basic, that's the basic idea. You're probably one of the deepest thinkers I, I know of out there in the investment business. I mean, I've been reading your um, stuff for maybe 15 years at this point. And, you know, in your answer to that and how you kind of answered that last question, it, it, it really makes me, I admire your interest and your passion for sort of continuous learning and digging deeply into things. And the issues we face as investors, which is largely what you are writing about. But really, I want to try to get at like, what, what led you to that level of curiosity in your life? Is there something that stands out that where you made the leap from being, you know, to who you are today in terms of learning as deeply about these things? Gosh, you're making it sound a lot better than it actually is, right? So I was a, I was a practicing analyst at, uh, at the time, First Boston, and just became very interested in the topic specifically of valuation. And, you know, obviously we're gonna get to expectations investing in a moment, but I was deeply inspired by Al Rappaport, who's my mentor. And, and so I was doing a lot of work on valuation. So I found myself going to client meetings and the clients would say something like, and, and I followed the packaged food company. So they'd be like, oh, we, we're curious about your you know, opinion about Kellogg and General Mills, but we really wanna to talk to you about valuation, right? So I ended up finding myself kind of going off into that path. And then I was like, you know, Rappaport made this point in his book that, that strategy is really important. So I did, you know, started doing deep dives on competitive strategy. And I just sort of, you know, as I was sort of fanning out, I was realizing there were all these other things that were really important. And then something else happened that was simultaneous, which, um, you know, and I think it's very, for me, it's, it's a great luxury, which is I've been, I've been fortunate enough in my career to work with people who have allowed me to allocate time to follow this stuff, right? So if you're really a professional investor, it's a difficult job. It's a very consuming job. And they're, they're doing a lot and they're thinking some, but they're doing a lot, right? By my, my job is a little bit more flipped, which is I can spend a lot of time thinking and working on these topics. So it's, it, you made it sound better than it actually is. I mean, I've been, I've been, ha I've had the luxury of being able to pursue some of these things. And, you know, that's the other thing I'll just say about investing, as you guys know, I'll just tell you what you know, which is it's an incredible, it's an infinitely fascinating field, right? Because you, you never have it licked, right? You always, there's always more to learn about how markets work. And the, by the way, they're constantly evolving. There's always more to le learn about how strategy, how companies interact and so on and so forth. So it's, it's one of those perpetual 
it's not like you learn math, you know how to do a certain technique and you've always got to fix, figure it out. This is a constantly evolving and changing uh, landscape. So on that topic, um, you've taught the securities analysis course at Columbia for a long time now. I don't know how many years, but for a while. And obviously, you know, that's probably evolved from the days of when Ben Graham taught it, um, his style of value investing. So from your perspective, what, what are the biggest changes maybe over the last decade or two with the way that you've kind of looked at teaching security analysis and valuation? Yeah, thanks, Justin. It's a great question. By the way, spring of 2022 will be my 30th year of teaching the course. So it'll be a little bit of a landmark for me. And um, you know, it, it's interesting because I always say to the students, I mean, I, I go in with this every year with huge butterflies in my stomach. And I think to myself, what if Ben Graham were sitting in the first row? How do we think about what we're talking about today? And I like to think to myself that Ben Graham, had he been around and doing this, that he would have evolved in a direction not too far from where we've gone. To me, the big, so obviously we just learned a lot about finance and strategy since Ben Graham, Graham was doing his thing, certainly back when he started teaching the class in the 1920s, but even when he died in the 1970s, we've learned a lot since then. So all that stuff comes into play. But to me, I think the biggest component, which by the way, Graham touched on almost, uh, I mean, quite, quite extensively, was really the, the decision-making literature, right? So I think that, you know, you think about Kahneman Traversky, still got it going in the 1970s. Many of their ideas have been around for a long time, but sort of codifying their ideas on things like prospect theory and, and heuristics and biases literature. And I think that's, that was a natural evolution. So if you said to me, even for my course, how is it different today than it was, say, 30 years ago, that there's, you know, we've now developed and integrated modules related to decision-making and that would be things like thinking about base rates very, you know, very extensively, thinking about the kinds of mistakes, confirmation bias, the kinds of mistakes that we all make. And by the way, if, if you don't think you make this, I just don't believe you. If you're in the game, you're making these mistakes, right? It's just a question of, can you minimize the damage, right? Because we all do them. And uh, yeah, so I think that would be, to me, the biggest, the biggest uh, differentiator. And, you know, I, again, you think about when Graham started this class in the 1920s, you know, we didn't really, you know, John Burr Williams hadn't written the theory of investment value. So we didn't even have a kind of a super formal way of valuing stocks. All the stuff on cost of capital hadn't been formalized. All the stuff on competitive strategy that, that Michael, these ideas had been around, but Michael Porter really codified. Those things hadn't been around. So, so you think about all the tools we've been able to add to the toolbox since he started doing this 80 plus years ago. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's exciting. And by the way, the other thing I'll just say is, you know, I, I'm super excited about teaching 2022 because I think there's a whole nother area which I think we'll talk about in a few moments about intangibles and how the nature of our economies have changed and what that means for valuation. So there's, there's more to do. It's really an exciting ongoing uh, uh, task. As you said, we're going we're gonna to talk more about in detail about fundamental approaches to investing. But first, I want to address this idea you've heard from a lot of people in the wake of the pandemic. And that's this idea that a lot of fundamental investors have said that fundamentals haven't mattered anymore. You know, we've been in a market where fundamentals have not really played a role in what's been going on. And you, you did a recent interview with an institutional investor and you pushed back on that a little bit. And I want to read the quote and then get you to comment on it. Your quote was, while there are pockets of speculation, e.g. meme stocks, I think for the most part, markets have been acting very sensibly. My faith in fundamental analysis has not been shaken by market behavior over the past 18 months. I don't see the markets being broadly mispriced. I'm wondering if you could comment on that and this idea in general that fundamentals haven't mattered. So, so Jack, I may be totally wrong about this. <laughs> First of all, let me just concede. Um, no, I think that, I think that's the main, the main point. And, and, uh, you know, I do think that, you know, if you said to yourself like, okay, we're going to have a pandemic, um, as a consequence, central banks around the world are going to lower discount rates. What would that mean for valuation as a consequence, we're going to work from home. And so the acceleration of digitization and so on and so forth, and what kinds of companies would benefit, what kinds of companies would be penalized. I mean, all that stuff, I think played out pretty much as, 
as you would have guessed, even a priori, right? So we didn't know that that event or those series of events that could happen. But if you, you'd had to predict the directions of various things, I think you would have been able to do that reasonably effectively. Now, I do think when you say, you know, what's going on that's unusual relative to the recent past, it is, you know, we talk about things like meme stocks, right? And, you know, um, Matt, Matt Levine at Bloomberg's got this great thing. He calls the boredom market hypothesis, right? So all of a sudden, you've got a lot of people sitting around at home looking at their computer screens. They've got a couple extra uh, dollars in their pocket because the government's paying them out, right? And that there's no sports betting. They've got nothing to do, right? So there's some, some activity that comes as a consequence of that. So to me, like the meme stocks would be an example where it might be the case where, in quotes, fundamentals don't matter. And, you know, again, we've seen episodes of this historically, so there's absolutely nothing new under the sun. Uh, maybe we've removed frictions because things people can trade for free and so on and so forth. But the basic concept of what we've seen has been around for a very long time. By the way, you know, these movies don't tend to end well, candidly, for people who are involved in these things. So we'll see how the dust settles finally. But they, you know, episodes after episodes. And then there are whole other parts of the market that I think we, where we hear that same exact fundamentals don't matter narrative. And that is when there's, an, there's a new market developing or a new industry developing. Um, one good example today is probably electric vehicles. I think we'd all agree that 15 or 20 or 30 years from now, electric vehicles will be more prominent on our roads than they are today. But we don't know exactly how this is going to shake out, which companies are going to win, how the whole infrastructure is going to change, and so on and so forth. So the typical way that markets, and this is, again, these are patterns that have played out over centuries, this is not new, is you just throw a lot, you try out a lot of stuff. You try out a lot of new companies, a lot of capital flows into it. It's essentially an evolutionary process, huge upswing in number of competitors, and then there's this weeding out process. The market is Darwinian and figures out what's going to go. So in those cases, in, in retrospect, it feels like the market does a really good job, but as you're living through it, it feels like there's a detachment between the prospects for particular companies and the money and the valuations and so on and so forth. So, so that was a little bit of what I was, that was where I was trying to go with all this. And, you know, the, just a broader comment is it's very tricky because right now we have relatively low discount rates, which themselves imply very muted ex returns going forward across different asset classes. And uh, in the case where companies have been able to grow, they're getting double benefits, which is obviously the value of the growth and especially long duration growth and low discount rates. So, that's why we start to see some valuations. And by the way, if you'd asked me, you know, I've been doing this since the mid 1980s. If you'd asked me if we'd ever see, you know, 140 or well, it was even below 1% 10 year, you know, back in the 1980s, I would have thought you were completely bonkers. And I would have bet a lot of money against that happening. But here we are, right? This is the world that we live in. So, yeah, you know, again, um, I, I, I guess I'm expressing some faith in market efficiency. But of course, if you're an active investor, you have to believe in inefficiency and inefficiency at the same time, right? Inefficiency means you create opportunities, um, and I think that's always been true, but efficiency means eventually, if you're right about how you think about the value of the business, that price-to-value gap gets closed at some point in the future. I always like to go back to your work when I'm trying, whenever I start thinking about short-term things and I need to get myself back in the long-term mindset, I always go back to your work. And so I want to ask you a couple of the specific things that have changed in the wake of the pandemic and how you think retail or, or long-term investors should look at them. So for instance, retail trading is way up options activities way up. And it seems like because of that, option dealers are having a much bigger impact on the market. Do you think any of that matters for a long-term investor? Or do you think that really is just short-term noise? Um, well, you know, noise is a hard word. I mean, because everything, everything matters, right? To some degree and everything counts to some degree. But uh, no, I, I think it's something you have to look past it if you're an investor. I do, I do think that. And, um, you know, the other thing I'll just say, and I already just mentioned it before, but Jack, you can look back at the history of individual investors participating. Now, obviously there's sort of a secular decline as mutual fund industries grown and people have you know, 401ks and so on and so forth. 
But we also have seen periodic times where inv individual investors get back involved in the market. And by the way, it tends not, as I said before, it tends not to be good. There's a large literature in the academic world uh, showing that institutions tend to benefit at the expense of individuals. So by and large, individuals are less sophisticated and they tend not to do that that well. And by the way, we see this in other markets as well. Now you're seeing this in sports betting, for example, it's a very sl small sliver of people making the money and most people end up, end up losing money. So yeah, to me, Let's let's go back to basics, Jack. And I like the way you say this. Like when you you know we all get caught up in this. Like how do we keep ourselves uh, focused on the north star? The key is to thinking about investing versus speculating, right? So investing is buying a partial stake in a business with an understanding that you are you're, you're going to get the benefits of that uh, value growth over time. Speculating is buying something hoping that it'll go up. And and as I always like to say, most investors combine too. I don't want to say everyone anybody's pure or not any of this stuff. But the reality is that you should separate those two things as you're participating in markets, right? So clearly, if you're you're buying or selling a meme stock, you're not doing it because you think there's fun. I mean, at least I presume that they, but by the way, the original of GameStop, there was fundamental value. So I think the, the initial buying of that stock back a long time ago was it was a fundamental case. But as it starts to make these sort of extraordinary runs, it stops to be a stops being a fundamental case. So again, what are you doing? So and, and by the way, there's no I'm not making a moral judgment. Speculation is perfectly fine. In fact, speculation is is actually a very, uh, can, in some ways can be a healthy thing for markets in terms of liquidity and so forth. So let's be clear, that's okay, but just, just demarcate what you're doing just to be clear about it. So I think that's the thing I would just remind people, what are you doing? Are you investing or speculating? You, you mentioned your book, Expectations Investing, earlier. And, you know, I largely credit that with reframing the way I think about you know, valuation. And I, I'm wondering, I know you just published a new version of it. I'm wondering if you could just maybe give a high-level overview of the ideas in that book. Sure. Uh, Jack, I don't want to discourage anyone from buying it, but here it is in 30 seconds, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it's like, you got to leave something quick. out. Something else today. Oh, by the book. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so there really are three steps to the process. And, you know, one of the things I, I was trying to do in preparation for, you know, the, the new version coming out and just talking to people, it just feels like the way investors like to operate is to figure out, estimate the value of a company and then compare that to the price. It just seems like they want to be in control of that part of the process for whatever reason. And I'm not sure I fully understand that. So expectations investing has three steps. The first step is to go backwards and say, the only thing we know for sure in this whole equation is the price. So let's go back and reverse engineer using a discounted cash flow model, which is an appropriate way to think about economic, both theoretically and I think practically, Think about what has to happen for this current stock price to make sense, right? So that's going to be typically articulated in things like drivers of, of value, which would be sales, growth rate, margins, capital intensity, those kinds of things, right? And so the key to step one is to try to be sort of agnostic, right? Like you don't have a view of the world necessarily. You just want to say what has to happen or what does one need to believe for today's stock price to make sense, right? So if you want a metaphor for that, it would be, where's the bar been set for the bar, a high jumper? We don't know how high the high jumper could jump yet, but we know the bar is set at two feet, five feet, 10 feet, whatever it is. Step two is then introducing historical analysis, but more importantly, strategic and financial analysis to judge whether that company is gonna meet, exceed, or come short of those expectations, right? So that's really where the rubber meets the road analytically. And again, history can be a really good guide for that, but but it's also, uh, and, and by the way, the other thing that comes out of this is really important is, you know, typically lower multiples are associated with lower expectations or higher multiple or high expectations. But you might notice that that whole discussion goes out the window, right? It's not really the difference, just low multiples. It's really how will the company perform vis-a-vis -vis what's priced in, right? So that's step two. And of course, the and, and I should say too, that that is a very probabilistic exercise. We argue that coming out of step two, 
What you should have is a number of scenarios for potential outcomes, and you should attach probabilities to those. So we're really going to think about the world in an expected value terms rather than, you know, here's the answer. And then step three is, of course, buy, sell, or hold as appropriate based on steps one and two. So that's the that's sort of the, and by the way, the book, the chapters five, six, and seven, that's sort of the core of the book. And that's that lays out each of those steps. So now, again, you don't have, I'm, we're obviously doing, you know, we have a whole apparatus around how to think about this, but, you know, the key thing is just to go back always and, and whether you're a handicap or any kind of bet that you're making, right? The question is always, what do I have to believe for this thing to make sense? And that's a fundamental question that you should always be posing about anything, any sort of endeavor like this. So that's the core idea, Jack. I was looking at your expectation investing website. You know, one of the things a lot of investors tend to do is they try to shortcut the process and they try to use a simple valuation multiple to, to sort of get an idea of, you know, if a company is cheap or not. And I was reading your 10 rules of expectations investing on your website and you pushed back on that a little bit. And you, the quote was, the price to earnings multiple is not an analytical shortcut. It's an economic cul-de-sac. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how you think about simple multiples. There's a little dramatic flair in that phrase, but, <laughs> but no, you're exactly right. I think that, you know, the point, the point I make over and over is that multiples are not valuation. Let me just stop there. Multiples are not valuation. They are a shorthand for the valuation process. And one should never confuse those two things, right? So the valuation process is the present value of future cash flows. Multiples are a shorthand. Now, what's good about multiples? What's good about shorthands in general, right? They save you time, right? And by the way, I should just be clear. I use multiples. If you and I were having a conversa casual conversation, we might, I would maybe drop multiples about a particular business, whatever, that's fine. But the key is that you understand the economic implications of the multiples that you're using. So you're saying, I think this should be a 15 times EBITDA or 30 times earnings. Uh, so that, what, what is that? What, what do I have to believe for those multiples to make sense? And so, as you know, we spent a lot of time writing about, we wrote a piece called, what does a PE multiple mean? We wrote a piece called, what does an EVD EBITDA multiple mean? essentially creating a bridge between those multiples as people tend to use them and the the underlying economic assumptions that you need to make in order for those to, to justify those multiples and just to be really explicit about those things. And, you know, as Watt the Motor in at New York University, sort of the dean of valuation, he's talked a lot about this. He's surveyed investor reports and he's found, or analyst reports, pardon me, and he's found that, you know, nine out of 10 rely predominantly on multiples. So this is how people tend to talk to one another. So again, as I tell my students at the end of the, you know, sort of the end of our valuation module, you have to sort of earn the rights to use multiples. You, you can use them, but earn the right. And, and the way you earn the right is to demonstrate that you understand the underlying economic assumptions that are embedded, right? So the last thing I'll say, and this goes back to expectations investing, broadly speaking, which is the assumptions about future value creation, investment needs, all the kind, that's implicit in a multiple. It's implicit. It's not that it's not there. It's implicit. And a DCF model, it is explicit, right? So people go, oh, well, you just changed the assumption a little bit, the value. Absolutely, but that's explicit. So the question is, would you rather have something implicit and buried, and then we don't really know exactly what we're doing, or explicit and overt, and then we could debate, right? And then that, that to me, of course, the latter is a vastly, vastly more attractive proposition than the former. So, so economic cul-de-sac might be a little bit strong, but, but that's, that's the basic idea. And then a related idea I'll just mention quickly is, there's a presumption often that growth in and of itself is a good thing. And what we, and we demonstrate this in a simple appendix in chapter one, I think it is actually, that growth in and of itself is not value, it needn't be value creating. So the, the key concept is growth adds value when a company's earning above the cost of capital, right? So qualifying growth, in fact, the way you should think about it is return on capital, cost of capital spread is first and foremost, and then growth amplifies, right? It makes a good thing better. And if your spread is negative, it makes a bad thing even worse.
as a, as a discretionary investor, you know, there, there are a lot of, you know, there's a huge rise here in the number of factor-based, you know, quantitative type strategies out there. And I'm wondering, you know, I could sort of make an argument both ways in terms of as a discretionary investor, you know, you could argue those strategies maybe make the market more efficient and makes it more difficult. But you could also argue, you know, if those strategies are looking at the wrong thing, if, if they're valuing business in the wrong way, maybe they would provide an opportunity for you. I'm wondering, like, as a discretionary investor, how do you think about that? You think those maybe are helpful or, or maybe how do you think that how do you think about those? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there. And the first thing I'll say is that, you know, the key just to be really clear about factor investing is that what I mean, academics have known this for a long time. Even CAPM came out in the 19, early 1960s, but it, as late as the late 1960s, early 70s people identified the one factor model like beta as is sort of not completely representing sort of the expected return. So this, these ideas have been around for a long time. I think it was, you know, sort of solidified with the Fama French 1992 paper, sort of that three factor model became big. But <clears throat> once again, the, what is a factor? What it's saying is you're generating returns relative to, these were anomalies relative to cap M, right? So the problem is the original cap M is the line the, the, the relationship between beta, the, it was a too flat a line. You're supposed to have an upward sloping line, right? Which is low risk, low return, high risk, high return. And the, and the line was too flat. So by introducing these factors, they got the line to go the right direction, right? That was really what it is. So these are factors relative to the cap M. That's what a very important thing to bear in mind. So that's the first comment I would just make. So, so, you know, notwithstanding the fact that uh, these, you know, these factors are out, I mean, there's, a, there's an ongoing debate in academia as to whether these factors are behavioral right? Which, uh, you know, we could, we could discuss that in more detail or risk. And because if they're risk, which is consistent with the, the classic framework, they're just, we're just, we just didn't identify risk before, or one factor didn't identify risk for, and we're doing a much better job of it today. Right? So now the next question is, you know, uh, things like, uh, here, here's, you know, and I wrote about this, uh, a little article in the financial times, people send to tend to conflate value investing and the value factor, right? The value factor is buying something that's statistically cheap based on price to book, or price to earnings or EVD, but da, value investing is buying something for less than what it's worth. And I think those things get conflated, conflated to some degree. So the question is, does this create market more market efficiency? I, I think I think it's hard. I mean, I, I don't know that it's had a huge measurable effect one way or another. And as you point out, there's been a huge rise in rules, called rules-based investing in general, right? So index funds, but also these different factor funds. Um, it's, I, I think the jury's out exactly what impact it's had specifically on, and on the idea of market efficiency. There, there are clearly some weird, there's some weird things around the edges, but for most people doing most of their day-to-day -day things, I don't think it makes that big a difference. You mentioned the behavioral argument for value investing, and it, it sort of plays back into expectations investing because the, the idea is, is here that we're, we're assuming the market has sort of set expectations incorrectly for these value stocks. It, and I'm wondering, do you, do you think over time as the market has become efficient, do you think maybe part of the reason value is not working as well is maybe that gap is narrowing now? You know, maybe the market is actually getting those expectations right for these stocks that are cheap based on, you know, these, these simple multiples. Yeah, well, I, I think that, um, you know, by the way, you, I, I didn't really say where I came down on that academic debate, but I'm in the behavioral camp, right? So I do think that many of these inefficiencies are a function of behavioral issues. But again, I think what's happened is the value factor itself has been, I mean, the factors always have been episodic. They work episodically, right? And they only, they're only true over long periods of time. But the value factor has actually been, uh, has struggled a lot over the last, say, decade or even 15 years. I mean, certainly since the financial crisis in general. And I think a lot of that is actually just mis misspecification that what price to book means today uh, or even price to earnings today is not as good as what it used to mean in the past. And so I, I think that it's just, you know, these, the factors were always a means to an end. And now we just know that the, the, the end is very different 
uh, pardon me, the means, the, the mechanisms for that means are just not as good as they used to be. I want to ask you, you know, one, one of the things a lot of us that are value investors have gotten wrong here is, you know, looking back at Amazon and Google, I mean, those, those companies were clearly attractive values in the past, but, you know, our standard metrics did a terrible job of, of judging them. And so I'm wondering, you know, this gets at the issue of intangible assets that you mentioned before. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and may, maybe what value investors got wrong about those types of companies. Yeah, thanks, Jack. I mean, the first thing I say again, value is just buying something less than what it's worth, right? So I, I, I don't want, I, I don't want people to think when they hear value investors, we only buy statistically cheap things, right? So that that value growth distinction, I feel, I mean, Buffett's talked about this. I feel that distinction doesn't make any sense, and I'll just I'll underscore that. But just a level set, and you're asking such a profound question, and it really is it permeates the whole industry. Is you know, going back to 1970s, tangible investments were double those of intangible investments. Tangible, these are things you can touch and feel. So think factories, machines, inventory, right? T touch and feel. Intangible assets, by definition, are non-physical, right? So these are things like software code or instructions or training or branding, those kinds of things. And so that was two to one, tangible, intangible. And now that relationship is flipped. So twice as much intangible than intangible, than tangible. So the the so that's the basic observation. I think most people will agree that it makes it makes common sense. But here's why it becomes tricky from from an investing point of view: is tangible investments are historically have always been on the balance sheet, right? So you capitalize them and depreciate them over time. By contrast, intangible investments by convention are expensed, and so as a consequence, they show up as an expense, and hence they uh, they they hurt earnings, right? You have less earnings, and so um, the key question is. Of the spending, let's say SGNA spending, what percent of that SGNA is necessary to maintain the business, and what percent is discretionary in pursuit of value creating growth? And I think when you talk about these sort of large companies, what I think the market may have missed is that they were making enormous investments that were showing up in their income statement, which made their earnings look very modest relative to their actual economic propositions. And you know, today we have very specific examples of things like you know, think of software as a service. You know, it might it might be very expensive for me to acquire you as a customer, right? So my customer acquisition cost may be relatively high, but once I've got you as a customer, I know that there's going to be a stream of cash flows going down the road, right? So from an accounting point of view, however, and, and presuming that that's an NPV calculation, right? That it's good for me to to have you as a customer. The faster I grow, the more I'm going to lose money, right? Which is horrible in some ways, right? So I think that's that's the distortion we have to we get we have to get past. So. You know, the report we wrote about this was called One Job. And what we what we argued for is that as an investor, you need to go down to the basic unit of analysis, right? Which is understand how that company makes money and then separ separately focus on the cash flows in order to understand the prospects, right? So if you do those two things, and again, you know, you know Jack, you've, asked, you've sort of said this long-term thing. And all, I mean, you, you want to have a North Star, right? On, in all these cases, you want to have a North Star that guides how you think about these things. And that's a good example of, the accounting is just not kept up with the actual underlying economics. Um, you know, sort of the, the thing people most go after um, when they talk about intangible assets, obviously, is the price to book. Um, you know, and, and it still surprises me to this day. I, th I think, you know, the price to book is probably the most used value factor because it's used in so many indexes. Um, but, you know, many people feel like probably the least effective value factor. I'm just wondering, do you think, you know, there seem to be two camps with the price to book. You know, most, most people don't think it's, it's all that useful in its standard form. But there seemed to be a camp that think, you know, well, we can capitalize R&D and SG&A and we can make this into a useful figure. Or there's others that think, you know, it's just not, you know, there's really nothing you can do. It's really not useful in this world anymore. I'm wondering where, where you fall in that. Yeah, well, I, you know, there is a, 
I think the people who say that it's not useful to capitalize intangibles or people have always used traditional price to books. So they, they're, they're, they, they may be motivated to think about that. Um, look, I think that there is a paper. I, I, look, I just think from, and I think most academics would agree with this. I think that there's a very strong case for uh, capitalizing intangibles, reflecting that in book value. And I think that improves the quality of the signals. Um, you know, there's a nice paper by Anoop Srivastava and Baruch Lev about the value factor. So if somebody Googles that, it's on Social Science Research Network, you will find that paper and they demonstrate, I think pretty persuasively, that the signal improves when you introduce uh, the intangible, uh, capitalized intangibles. So I'm definitely in the camp that doing that makes sense. Now, the the reason I'm sort of excited about all this is the standard way to do this in, in quantitative finance and academic finance is to take 30% of SG&A and assume that that's an intangible investment. So this 0.3, that was based on a particular paper and everybody sort of replicates it. Um, that's a very common ac academic thing, right? Everybody just does the same thing as the guys before them and then it becomes accepted. Um, I think that there's an enormous amount of nuance and there's actually some very recent research uh, demonstrating or thinking about what percent of SGNA should really be considered an intangible investment, what percent should be considered to be maintenance, how do we break those out? And then, you know, that's the first big set of decisions. And the second is, was an appropriate amortization period, right? A useful asset life of these things. And so there's a lot of, there's a, you know, the work is actually fast and furious in terms of understanding these things more effectively. I think that work, for example, what percent of SGNA, which varies by industry to state the obvious, uh, and the asset lives, which varies about by the type of investment that you're making, just like it does for physical assets, that's going to be that's going to find its way more into the quantitative work, and I think that's going to improve the fidelity of those signals to a large degree. Now, look, um, you know, I, I mentioned expectations investing. I, I don't like this growth versus values thing, but just to be clear, statistically cheap stocks are by and large low expectation stocks, right? And so the idea, and, and by the way, maybe the company will not even meet those expectations, so it may not be a good investment, but all things being equal, lower expectations are better than higher expectations, right? So I, I still think you need to distinguish between expectation performance, but again, uh, the, the basic idea of value investing in the sense of buying something for less than what it's worth, that to me makes enormous sense. One of the things I've noticed, like as we, as we sort of look at our investment universe over the last decade or so, I've noticed that every year, at least using traditional price, you know, traditional price to earnings or traditional earnings, there's been more and more companies that are losing money. Um, you know, I, I forget what the percentage is now, but it's a lot more than it was, say, a decade ago. And I'm wondering, is there is there anything to read into that, or, or is that really getting back to what we've been talking about with intangibles? Maybe we're not measuring earnings properly. Yeah, I think it's the latter. But you know, look, there are two ways to lose money. One's the old-fashioned way, which is costs are greater than your revenues, and that's bad, right? So we don't want that. Um, the second way is exactly what you described, Jack, which is that your investments are showing up on your income statement. Those are attractive NPV positive investments. And as a consequence, they don't really have, they don't really tell you about the value of the company. And so that, that to me is the distinction that you wanna make sure you're, you're making. Um, you know, one of the things I always like to point out is that you know, Walmart for the first 15 years that it was public had negative free cash flow every year. So it was profitable but it invested more than its earnings and hence free cash flow was negative. Walmart was spectacular, right? I mean, it had great returns on capital. The stock uh, performed three times the benchmark of the S&P 500 over that period. So it was a great stock. But again, that's only a vestige of the accounting, right? So let's say the, a modern day ver version of Walmart would have been expensing all those same investments. It would have looked, looked like it was losing money. The free cash flow may have been exactly the same and would have had, a, you know, would have had similar type of economic performance. So. So let's not get confused by the accounting. Let's focus the tr focus on that trail of what are the what is the underlying economic proposition. And again, that's why we call it one job. Let's keep our 
let's let's focus you know like they say in basketball when you're playing defense watch that watch the hips right because not everything's going to follow the hips up and that this is a little bit of following the hips kind of idea which is let's let's focus on the the basic unit of analysis and really understanding that so to your point um look it's not eventually all companies have to you know you you want you want to make sure your economic proposition is good but um yeah losing money in and of itself doesn't really tell you whether a company is uh, an attractive business or not that makes sense. I just had one more before I hand it back to Justin. I was just reading your Twitter right before we jumped on and you had a tweet that I had to add in a question about because, you know, one of the things we've tried to do at Validia is try to figure out how to model historically successful investors. And I know AQR wrote their superstar investor report. They did it. Jim O'Shaughnessy in his first book took a look at that. And you had a tweet uh, that you just sent out, I think, yesterday, which is, I've always found that fast, this fascinating. Models derived from professionals do better than the professionals themselves. And I'm wondering, you know, investing would seem like one of the most difficult places to do that. Um, to try to model the best investors and to try to create something that's close to what they were. I'm wondering how, how, if you think that tweet applies to investing or how difficult you think it is to model some of the best investors in history. Such an awesome question, Jack. By the way, that was Jim O'Shaughnessy's book, right? Invest Like the Best. So I think that was literally what Jim did, which is he looked at successful investors and said, let me see if I can assign quantitative, qualitative factors to what they're doing and then see if I can create a model of them. And the model he created of the people did better than the people themselves. So now, I would just say that, um, and I think I sort of alluded to it at the very end, or I made it kind of an open question on that, on, on that, those tweets, which is uh, the way I would think about this is when you think about the investment process for most of discretionary investors, there are going to be a lot of components that are qualitative and where a lot of adjustment, judgment comes into play. And especially, by the way, when we think about longer term investing, things that are more like three, five, seven, ten 10 years out, this is where uh, really factors or machine learning or AI, they're not going to help you that much, right? Because all, you know, AI and machine learning is based on feeding it history, right? And so the future has to be to some degree consistent with the past. For it. So that's why those things are going to work incredibly well in the relatively short term, but they're not going to understand, you know, longer term. So if you said, again, let's use electric vehicles. If you said 20 years from now, you know, the preponderance of cars sold will be electric or whatever it is, the first, second, third order considerations, just a, an AI can't do anything with that, right? So that's, um, that's the first thing. But that said, while it's qualitative and there's a lot of judgment, the question is, are there any aspects of it that might be more quantitative? So I, and by the way, I, I've, I'm drawn very much to systematic guys. I love quants. I think I love all those guys, right? So the question is, can we operate? Is there some point of intersection between the two areas? The two things I would point to, um, which I think are useful, one would be um, position sizing, right? So position sizing at the end of the day can be a mathematical exercise, which is if you know your inputs, and that's a, these are all premises that you know. You know your inputs, you know your objective, and you know your constraints. Input, constraints, objective, you can actually model that usually mathematically. And I think very few managers do that very effectively. And then the second thing is the application of base rates, right? Which is using historical performance and understanding how to adjust historical performance to anticipate what's going to happen in the future. So again, there's some qualitative judgments there because you have to mix sort of how the world is changing with what we've seen in the past. But that, that, that I think you can, you can have a foundation that's somewhat quantitative that can be helpful in that case as well. So that would be, that would be a model versus a, a human, right? So it's a fascinating thing. Now, I think where that stuff really worked, where it works is uh, things like, and that's, you know, it's, it's Kahneman's book, right? Noise, new book. Give it a little prop. Uh, so it's, it's things like judicial decisions, medicine, that's where the models of the man or person, the models of the person tend to do better than the person themselves. But so I think there is application to investing for sure, but the key is to be very thoughtful about what is 
more judgment oriented and what is, what could be more systematic in terms of how we think about it. To your point, it definitely seems like it, it totally depends on who the investor is. I mean, you know, AQR struggled the most with, most with Lynch because, you know, Lynch is probably one of the most difficult investors in history to try to quantify, whereas maybe some others you can get a little bit closer. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I'll just say, I mean, my reaction a lot of times is, you know, and I think they wrote a buff, a, a article about Buffett and, you know, how to decompose Buffett's alpha and so forth. I mean, it's very easy to do things historically and say, and even, you know, dimensional, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, XYZ fund manager did well. If you just bought this mix of these different funds we had, you would have done as well or better and so on and so forth. Super easy to do that historically, right? The key question is, can you do that prospectively? So it's a, it's a, it's a fun exercise. It's fun to dis disassemble how people did well in the past, but it's a very tricky, it's, it's a lot easier to do it with, with, with the benefit of hindsight than it is going forward. So we're coming up on the time of year where uh, Wall Street strategists are giving their year-end 2022 S&P um, target prices. I'm not going to ask you for yours, but I, I feel like if I did, you would say, Justin, the S there's a 68% chance the S&P will return 10% plus or minus 14%, which is the standard deviation of the S&P over time. That is correct, Justin. And you know, the thing is, I don't, and I don't think it's 10, it's probably a little bit less than 10. And I think the standard deviation might be a much higher than that, but you're exactly right. It's, you think about a distribution and, um, you know, it's, this is the silly season where people make these forecasts and even people that give ranges typically have ranges that are too narrow. So yeah, the answer is go, don't, don't, you know, like you want to be aware of these kinds of things, but this idea of forecasting, it, it's not a good way to, to make yourself look good. That's for sure. <laughs> But along those lines, what are, what are your thoughts on, you know, a lot of firms do forecast long-term stock returns. So I pr pretty much every, every major, you know, um, investment house does it, Vanguard does it, Research Affiliates, Morningstar, GMO. Do you think there's value in that? And it, maybe more specifically, like how is an individual investor when they see those types of things, like how should they be thinking about returns when they see those? Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll just say is unless there are uh, ranges, you should be very careful about paying attention to it. So, you know, there, you can audit some of these guys, you mentioned all these guys doing these forecasts, you can audit what they've said in the past and see how they've done. And, and it's not very pretty, right? The answer is it's a range of outcomes and people should think about that specifically. Now, I will say that what I, I you know, when I think about forward looking returns and obviously, you know, we do things like cost of capital calculations and I do these for my course, what I actually use is Aswath the Motorin. And you know, as every month, Aswath publishes a market risk premium to which you can add the risk-free rate to 10-year treasury note yield, and you come up with an expected return for the market. So the other day, we just did this fairly recently. I was keen to understand like how good is this, right? And so what we did is, and Aswath has these data back to 1961. So we actually on the x-axis put the, you know, the number for that particular year. And then we looked at the 10-year subsequent total shareholder returns. And the correlation was about 0.7. So it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And again, that's a single point estimate. I'm sure Aswath himself would say for sure, you should have a range around those things. Like you said, 68% up or down based on one standard deviation. And so that's pretty good. So I think that gets you into the ballpark. And the other thing I'll say, Justin, I think is important is when people get worked up about this is we have a lot of, a lot of other touchstones in markets that we can, we can appeal to that allow us to give us some guidance. And, and by far the most important for equity investors is obviously credit bond markets, right? So we know, for example, you can go to the triple B, go to Fred, you go to website every day and you'll get the triple B spread, for instance. So you know exactly what bonds are returning. So that's going to be, and there's usually a relationship between, you know, these are, they're just stacked on the capital structure. There's going to be some relationship between these things over time. So 
And then you can even look at things like implied volatility. You could look at things like credit default swaps where there's liquidity. So there's a, there's a bunch of different ways that you can try to, to kind of create a little bit of a mosaic to understand where you are. The punchline, by the way, today, as I mentioned to a few moments ago, is that expected returns are fairly muted. I think Aswas numbers for December 1st were something like an expected return for the market in the low sixes. That's nominal, by the way. So if you apply, you know, who knows what inflation is going to be, but if you do the 10-year break-evens, you know, you're sort of getting a three and a half, four and a half percent real return for markets, equity markets in the U.S. And that's, you know, as that, you know, historically it's been closer to six to seven percent. So, you know, it's, I don't know what that is. Two thirds, 70 percent of the historical returns is probably a reasonable expectation today. Um, and so it's more muted. Now, again, that's again, you can you, you see that everywhere. If you buy bonds, you're in the same boat and so on and so forth. So it's a great question. I, it's the key is just to think about these things probabilistically. The key is to think about things scenario wise. And by the way, you know, we had it, we're going to have a very good 2021 for the stock market and, and who knows what 2022 will hold. But again, this is not outside the band of what you would expect. If you said, like you said before, you know, 10%, 10% mean in a, in a 15 or 20% standard deviation, like we're, we're in the, you know, this is what you expect over time. I wanted to ask you about passive investing and some of the narratives that have gained prominence here over the past decade. Um, the first, and these are both things that you've written about. The first is that passive investing is distorting the market because most passive uh, indexes are market cap weighted. So they weight the higher stocks, the larger stocks more. And the second is around the reduction in uh, active managers and um, about the idea that you would think that, you know, if you have less active managers, the ones who are left actually can generate more alpha because there's less competition. So you've actually looked at both of these things. I'm wondering if you just comment on them. Yeah, so the, you know, the first idea about, um, you know, distortions, you know, the first thing just to say, by the way, if you're buying a traditional index fund, like the S&P 500, you give them money, they buy everything in the proportion it is today. So every company, you know, so I don't know this idea, like more the the, the higher value companies do get more valuation, but it doesn't change anything from a valuation point of view. And so this goes back to the key idea that, you know, look, we're, we're never going to go back to 100% active and we can't go to 100% passive, right? So active managers do things, two things that are very important societally. And I don't want to get too grandiose, but societally, the first is price discovery, which is exactly what you're talking about, Justin. And the second is liquidity, which is also very important. And we don't want to leave that, we don't want to leave that aside. By the way, interestingly, index investors tend to be stickier than traditional active manager, uh, active investors, which is also, you know, so that they're actually doing less. And that's an interesting, has an interesting liquidity implication. My, my own sense is that the pendulum has, and, and, and the pendulum has swung violently away from active toward passive. But my sense is we're not at the point where we're jeopardizing the core element of, 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 of price discovery. So that, you know, I, I, you know, and, and there, there are fringe cases, by the way, there are fringe cases just to be super clear when things go in and out of indexes, when, you know, a certain, there's a cutoff for an ETF and your, you know, your company number 16 versus 15 in the ETF or whatever is, there's some fringe cases, for, but for the most part, I don't, I just don't see this as being a big problem. The second one's a fascinating one because I, and by the way, Peter Lynch, I think very recently made a comment about why active is good in this context. It's very intuitive to think to yourself, well, gee, if everybody's just going for average, it's easier to become above average. But it actually is, uh, I think the actual, the actual answer is completely the opposite, which is interesting, right? So the first thing just to state, by the way, Bill, Bill Sharp wrote a very famous paper on the arithmetic of active management. And he basically said, if you think about it, this has to be roughly right. And it's not perfectly right, but it's roughly right, right? So there's the return. Let's just say the market's the S&P 500 is obviously much bigger. Let's just say the S&P 500 to constrain our discussion. 
you're going to have some percentage indexed, right? And they're going to earn the rate of return of the market minus their small fees. And then the other part is active, right? And and, and act, the active managers in the aggregate are also going to earn the market rate of return, right? Because the two pieces have to equal the total, right? So by definition, they're going to earn the market rate of return. Now, the key is their fees are higher than the indexers, right? So by definition, indexers are going to outperform the active managers in the aggregate. That's been true for a long time. Nothing new about that. So now let's zoom in a little bit on the active managers, right? What we, what we have is a distribution of returns, right? So for you to have positive alpha, and the, even before fees, forget about fees. If, you'd have, if you have positive alpha, someone has to have negative alpha, right? In the exact same dollar amount, right? By mathematically, that has to be true. Alpha is a y-intercept on a, on a regression, right? So it, it's a y-intercept, which means it has to be zero net. So, so the question is, um, who's on the other side of my trade, right? And so what, what, I argue, what I would argue, and I'm not sure this is completely true, although I think directionally people would by and large agree with it, is the, the money has flowed out of the weaker hands in terms of the active community. And that could be weaker mutual funds, weaker individuals. They've mostly gone to indexing. And as a consequence, those who remain are actually smarter, right? And so Justin, the metaphor I would use is something like a poker table, right? So let's say you have a poker game Friday night, you, brought, you, you invite your buddies over, and, and of course your buddies are gonna have some distribution of skill, right? Some will be better players than others, and the smarter players will take money from the weaker players over time, right? For sure, not any particular night, but over time. But if, if all of a sudden you're, the weaker players decide they don't wanna play anymore, or they just come and drink your beer, which they might do and not play, right? Um, which is, which in a sense, by the way, we, the active community, by the way, just to be super clear, the invest, the, the passive community, the indexing community is free riding off the active community, right? So there's free riding here just to be super clear about this. And that's why drinking your beer is a free ride. But if those weak players leave, the people that are around your, your poker table Friday night are only the best players. And as you can imagine, if it's only the good players, it becomes more difficult to win. So I think that poker metaphor is actually a pretty good way to think about this is that if you accept the premise, and I think we can mostly show this, but if you accept the premise that the, those who have fled the active market are the weaker players, those who are left over are the stronger ones and it becomes harder. So that's the, those, those are the two things. So it's, it's interesting, but I, you know, as you point out, I think it's correct to really keep focused on this because if there are indeed distortions that show up or, you know, weird things that show up, we should be try to try to be alert to those and to break them down a little bit. So, um, you know, I'll just say too, the, the cartoon version of all this is I think that, that active managers for, as a community, for a large community, the fees were just higher than the, the, even the prospect of alpha justified and that, so there's been a little bit of that correction, but that, that's not going to go on forever, right? So there's going to be some sort of equilibrium that makes sense. We're not quite, I don't think we're there yet, but we're getting more close. We're obviously getting closer to that equilibrium between active and passive. That makes sense. I've always found your thoughts and research on this, uh, luck and skill and how you look at those things and how, how we should look at luck and skill when investing. And one of the reasons it resonates so much with me is because when we first launched many of the models, well, some of the models on Validia, it was in 2003 and we were mostly, I would consider us like a small traditional quantitative, like value, like strategies mostly. And that was like, like from 03 to like, you know, late 06, early 07, it was like a golden age for those types of strategies. And many of them haven't done nearly as well over the last 15 years as they did in the first five years. And so that idea that we were, we had the strategies, we were, and they're good strategies, but we were very lucky to launch the strategies then 
um, you know, I understand that now as I've learned more about investing and I know the importance of sort of what plays um, in your success. But what I wanted to ask you specifically was um, as the level of skill in investing rises over time, some people actually think that luck plays a smaller role than it did, but you've actually found the opposite of tr is true. So can you explain the idea of the paradox of skill? Yeah, thanks, Justin. It's a great question. And again, it's one of these things that's not at first blush intuitive, but it's, I think it's right. So when you think about skill, you can think about it on two levels. The first is absolute skill. And I think we'd all agree and all the listeners would agree that if you look around the world, not just investing, but business and sports or whatever it is, that the absolute level of skill has never been higher, right? And part of that is because we have better training, better techniques, better in investing. We have, you know, computing power and access to information and so on and so forth, right? So I think that's, there's not a lot of doubt about that. The second issue though, is the one that's more important for our discussion, which is relative skill, right? Which is the difference between the very best and the average participants in each field. Now I learned about this idea. Um, it was not my idea at all. I learned about it from Stephen Jay Gould, who wrote a book called Full House back in the mid 1990s. And he was ruminating on why no one has hit over 400 in major league baseball since Ted Williams did that in 1941. And you know, the, the argument he said was because essentially the standard deviation of batting average has come down a lot, which is there's more uniform skills. So even though the batting average hasn't changed all that much, and in fact, the powers that be at Major League Baseball will change the rules to keep it sort of in a reasonable band, the standard deviations come down a lot. So Ted Williams was a three standard deviation event. And if you were a three standard deviation event now, you'd hit like 380 or 385, which is awesome. You'd win the batting title, but you're not anywhere near breaching that 400 level. So I think the same thing is true in investing and we can measure that, right? We, we measure by looking at essentially the equivalent of batting average, which is a standard deviation of alpha. And historically that's come down a lot. Now I'll just say one thing, Justin, which is a little bit weird is it it's actually flattened and bumped up a little bit in the last couple of years. So for reasons, I'm not sure I can fully, fully put my arms around. So a part of that might just be, it's correlated with the actual dispersion of markets to some degree. So, so it, it, there, there's some other external factors that come into play, but, um, but yeah, so, so that's the way to measure it. So when you look around and, and by the way, sports leagues, this is a really good sort of framework to think about this sport le sports leagues are actually grinding toward parity at return. And I know some of them have like salary caps in order to try to encourage parity, but they're all grinding toward parity because these guys are all so good, right? So even the bad teams are really good, right? And, and certain sports like baseball or, or hockey are, are very, very, um, the, the level of skill is very high and very uniform. And as a consequence, luck has, it appears to make, make a bigger, have a bigger role in the outcome. So that, this is the thing I, and I, I push back, you know, in, in Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, he's got a little section where he talks about investment managers and gee, they're so clueless about there's no skill in this industry. And I, and I went to him and I said, you know, it's actually the opposite. You know, the way to think about it is the skill is not, not only high, but it's uniform, right? And you think about how many smart people go into this industry and, and how motivated they are and how hardworking they are and how thoughtful they are. It just defies logic that, that, that there's no skill. There's huge amounts of skill. It's just, that's the problem, right? And that skill gets reflected in prices. And if prices to the degree to which they're largely efficient, then means, that means the random walk kind of thing comes into play. Great. Yeah. Last uh, uh, question for you. And this is our standard closing question. I mean, I feel like all your answers maybe could have uh, helped with this or been a response to this, but based on your experience in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? 
So Justin, it's a great question. And I think that I would encourage people to learn about and apply base rates as they think about the world of investing. By the way, it's not just valuable for investing, but really business or your life, actually. It's good for your life. And again, a base rate, uh, you know, the, 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 the basic setup is the natural way to think about the world or solve your problems is to gather a bunch of information and combine it with your own ex inputs and experience and project into the future. And that's, that's what we all do, left to our own devices. Using base rate says, I'm going to think about what I'm facing now or my problem as an instance of a larger reference class. I'm going to basically ask what happened when other people or organizations were in this position before. And it's a very unnatural way to think because you have to leave aside, you know, sort of your own information gathering and your own experience. We all tend to place a lot of value on that. And you have to find and appeal to the base rate, which may not be at your fingertips and often it's not. So you have to go out and make a little effort to find it. But once you do, I think it reshapes how you think a lot about the world. And I think uh, makes you more grounded in terms of how you think about how things are likely to unfold. So to me, if that would be the one idea is to say, let's think about base rates. You know, you mentioned before, jokingly, that we're in that sort of season where people do forecasts. You know, that's a great example where base rates would be very helpful. And you, you sort of made the joke 10% with some standard deviation, but that's actually the right way to think about it. That's, that's actually the right answer. And that was, that's informed by, uh, by base rates. So you're, you're, you got to the right place and the right way to think about it using that actual technique. So to me, that would be the one bit of advice I would give. And if I could go back to my 20 year old self, that's certainly what I would teach. And, and by the way, I would just say that it's remarkable how underutilized this concept is notwithstanding its demonstrable power, right? So anyway, that would be my, that would be my concluding thought. So many valuable insights in here. Um, this has been awesome. I really hope we don't hurt the sales of the book. Hopefully, hopefully <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll be putting links to, uh, all, uh, the book and a lot of your research, but if people want to learn more uh, and find out uh, more about you and, and follow your research, where can they go? There are two ways to do it. One is michaelmobison.com. So just my full name, uh, .com website. And then the second would be my Twitter handle, which is MJ Mobison. And, uh, yeah, thank you. By the way, say Justin, Jack, thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. Super fun talking to you guys today. Really, really fun sets of topics. And I think really important sets of topics. Great. Thanks, Michael. Happy holidays. Thank you. Happy holidays to you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.